0: I want to invite you guys now to take your Bibles. As for the next little bit here in our time together, we will be walking verse by verse through a psalm that's known as a psalm of lament, Psalm number 13. If you have your Bible, you can flip over to Psalm number 13. I want to offer you a copy of the Bible if you don't own one. We'd love to give you one. And we've provided Bibles at the middle of each aisle for that purpose. So if you look under the chair at the the center of each aisle, there, there are Bibles there. Ask somebody to pass one to you. We'd love for you to have it. It's been my pleasure the last couple weeks to sit out there with you guys and listen to our other elders unpack for us some of the beauty of God's word to us through the Psalms. We've been using Psalms of lament to try to help ourselves get used to the, the steps that God's people have taken to bring their sorrows, their sufferings, and their longings to Him in a way that honors Him but is also honest with Him. We've talked about how lament throughout the Bible... Shows us the importance of turning to God with what's wrong. With complaining openly and honestly to him about what's wrong. With following that complaint with bold requests of him to do something about it. And with, with trust that despite what we see around us, God can make a new story out of my life. It's that jump to trust this morning that we especially want to pay attention to. So, one of the things we've noticed about these Psalms, um, these Psalms of Lament, is that they resonate powerfully with people who are hurting. Uh, the, the, the language is just remarkably relevant and, and present, contemporary. But sometimes, this is something else we've noticed. Sometimes, just when you're starting to think that the Psalm gets you and is speaking for you, words you didn't even know to put to your experience, you can get thrown by a jump to trust. Just a couple examples from the last couple of weeks. So Psalm 10, Matt Givens preached from three, three weeks ago, starts out with, with this kind of language. Why do you stand far away? That's a question of God. Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That's a question asked of God. By the end of the psalm, though, here's what the psalmist is writing. To God, again, you hear the desire of the afflicted, you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Psalm 22, Shaka preached from that one last week. Same pattern. Starts out with this this is, this is honesty. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Basically accusing God of leaving him. And by the end of the psalm, the psalmist is saying this He's not despised the affliction of the afflicted, talking about God. He has not hidden his face from him. Why have you forsaken me? He has not hidden his face from me, but has heard when he cried to him. We we notice in the fact that most lament psalms, almost all of them, end like that. They start with honesty, that when you're hurting, connects with you. But they end with trust that can sometimes feel like a bow tied on top. That can sometimes feel like just when the water began to boil over and you started to express what was inside you, somebody comes in with a lid and shoves it down on top of it and holds it down and latches it down to keep it back in there. And these jumps to trust instead of encouraging us can sometimes make us feel like we're alone again. That's what I've heard from some of you. That's what I've read from the experience of others. And maybe that's what you're thinking this morning. And if you are, then uh, this morning is especially for you. We're going to talk about this jump to trust that lament takes. This jump from honesty and despair into confidence that God will hear and answer those who call out to him. Because if we don't come to understand that jump to trust, then, then, then our hesitancy, our being thrown by it, our, our sort of disorientation by that jump can keep us from getting the life support that we need and are meant to get from these psalms. So that's what we're going to do today, is talk about the trust component to lament and how the trust component to lament is not a change of subject. It isn't just more suppression of what's true in you. And it isn't even resolution. It isn't a happy ending. It isn't an ending at all. We're going to talk about how trust in these lament psalms is actually just a landing place For honest desperation, not a resolved situation, not the end to whatever took you to God in lament in the first place, but a landing place for honest desperation. We're going to talk about how honesty about what you feel leads to a desperation about your situation, leads to trust, serves trust in the Lord. That's what we're going to do this morning. I want to begin by reading Psalm 13. It's not long. It's only six verses. We're going to read the whole thing together and I'm going to ask you now to stand in honor of God's word while I do that. This is Psalm number 13, a psalm of lament. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? Forever. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's word. You can be seated. We're going to take a simple journey through this psalm this morning that I hope will help you take the same journey through other psalms of lament. We're going to move from honesty through desperation to trust. From honesty about where you are through desperation about what you're facing to trust in the Lord who hears you. Those three steps. I first just want to quickly look at the gut-wrenching honesty of David's questions. He goes straight to the point, doesn't he? In verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 13, he gets right to it. He's not concerned about filtering himself. He's not concerned about offending the God he speaks to. He isn't concerned about getting his words just right so that they land in the proper way. He doesn't have the bandwidth for that kind of intentionality and care. He is all the way to the end of himself and so he just says it. Will you forget me forever? David feels forgotten by God. He feels unimportant. He feels like his life, his concerns, what he's facing has slipped, buried in the fine print beneath the fold. Only maybe it's actually worse than that. In verse, the, the second half of verse 1, he says, how long will you hide your face from me? Oh, maybe I'm not just forgotten. Maybe God has willfully willingly, intentionally turned away. Maybe it's not just that he got busy and I got lost in the shuffle. Maybe it's intentional. David doesn't just feel forgotten. He's he's worried that he's been abandoned. Maybe the fact I can't see him or feel him means he's chosen to leave me alone. And that's exactly where David remains, alone. Verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Again, David's just being honest. He feels like he's got nobody but himself to talk to. When he speaks, no one talks back. And so he's inside, internalizing it all, churning on a thought loop that goes on all day and into the night and into the next day and into that night on repeat forever. And that's what he feels like anyway. Anyway goes back and forth with himself, sort of steeping in his pain like tea. He just sits in it. He has no outlet, no channel, no new stream of water to change what he sees or to influence what he's thinking. He must take counsel in his own soul. He must just sit in his sorrow all day. And on top of all of that, David feels defeated. Verse 3, or excuse me, verse 2. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Those who want him to suffer get what they want, and there's nothing he can do about it. That's the picture that comes out of these first two verses. David is just straight up honest. This is where I am. And in his honesty, what David says is, I feel all alone. That's the way to summarize the first two verses. He's all alone. Now, we said this before every week so far in this series on lament. I'm going to say it again now. It's important to be honest. Uh, God wants your honesty. God invites your honesty. That's the reason that there are psalms like this one in the Bible. They've been preserved for thousands of years so that you could use them where you are. Because God isn't threatened by your honesty towards him. He is honored even when you speak to him about what you're dealing with. And if you think you may be dealing with depression this morning, you should know, first of all, that that many others sitting around you either are dealing with it or have dealt with it. So you're you're really not alone. But, But another thing you should know is that part of that experience, one of the most common experiences in depression is a turning inward. Where the pain inside of you, what you're feeling about yourself, screams so loudly that you can't see anything else. It claims all of your attention. It keeps you from seeing God. It keeps you from seeing others. Instead of looking up or around, you're constantly looking in. I don't say that to shame you. I say that for self-awareness that that's what it is. That's what this condition does. It pulls all attention on itself. It's like, it's like when, you, when you've injured an arm or a shoulder, like you're not thinking about anything else except that pain that's screaming. What once was silent is now claiming all of your attention and, and that's probably what you're dealing with at least in part and what you should know is that this psalm here is modeling a, a really important part of coping for you and ultimately healing It's modeling a choice that you can make. It's a choice that David made. It's a choice between calling out to God or not calling out to God. That's one fundamental choice that you have this morning. You can call out to Him or you cannot call out to Him. David chose to call out to Him. And calling out just looked like spewing exactly what he felt. I want to invite you to try talking to God like that today. Try doing it out loud. Try using this psalm. If you don't know what words to say about what you're feeling inside of yourself, then then read this psalm out loud, these first couple of verses, and apply them to yourself as your words. And eventually, what you may find is what others have found, that speaking out of your head like this, speaking to God, even when you're not sure He's there and aren't confident that He'll listen, Can be part of how you get out of that isolated, churning thought loop that keeps you trapped and spiraling downward. This is how you break out. Talk to Him. And then when you do it, when you do break out of that isolating thought loop, counsel that's in your soul, only in your soul, seeping in your sorrow all the day, when you break out and you actually say these things to God, I want you to pay attention to one crucial difference. One motive behind identical words. A difference in motive behind the same exact words that you could say to God. And the motive that's driving what David says here. And it must drive what you say to God. It's a motive that's going to become more and more important as we move through the rest of the psalm. What I mean is, is this. If if all we had were these first two verses then we might think that David's honesty here is almost sarcastic criticism. That he's basically calling God out. That he's also basically just checking out on God, giving up on him. Are you going to forget me forever? You can almost hear that tone behind it. How long are you going to hide your face from me? But that's not what he's doing at all. These, These are honest questions. Here's how one person put it. What this writer is dealing with is not a crisis of faith, but a crisis of understanding. He doesn't get why he's going through what he's going through. He's honestly, sincerely wondering why God would let him suffer. He's wondering how he could possibly pray like he's praying over and over all the day and hear nothing, see nothing. He honestly doesn't get it. It's a prayer of disorientation not of anger, not of judgment. He's not shaking his fist at God. He actually wants God. And that motive is going to become more and more important as we move through this psalm. He isn't blaming God for not being near him. He's asking God to be near him. He wants more of God. He's pleading with him. He's not judging him. And we see that in what he asks of God. His request of God here is simple. It's straightforward. straightforward. Verse 3, consider and answer me. That's the only ask. He misses him. He's disoriented, and he wants reorientation. If you loved me, God, you can hear this behind his questions and his ask, wouldn't I be able to see it? If I were important to you, wouldn't I be able to feel you with me? So, so Really, to me, the question is, why is he, if he's feeling what he's feeling, he feels completely alone, and he feels like maybe even God has intentionally abandoned him, why does he keep coming? Why does he keep asking him to be, be near? Why hasn't he moved on to some other option? Because his honesty has not led him to anger or judgment. He hasn't gotten caught in a sort of cul-de-sac of honesty where he's just spewing. His honesty has has carried him to abject, absolute desperation. He understands what it means if God isn't for him. And he knows better than to look for a better option. Look at verse 3 again. It mentioned the request is really simple. Consider and answer me. It's basically a request for God to be with him. He wants God back. He had them. He doesn't seem to have them now. He wants more of them. That's the simple request. But most of that verse is not on the request itself, but on why he's asking. It's on the stakes if God doesn't answer him, if God isn't for him. That's where his attention really is. That's the focus of the verse. If he really is alone, If God has forgotten him, or even worse, abandoned him intentionally. If that's true, verse 3, I'll sleep the sleep of death. He prays because he knows if God doesn't answer him, he's a dead man. If I have been forgotten, if God has hidden his face from me, if I'm really on my own, verse 4, then my enemy prevails over me. His enemies will expose him and his faith as empty and his God as a fraud. You see how the psalmist has reached desperation here? He starts with honesty but he goes all the way through. He pulls that thread all the way to the end and he knows better than to shake his fist at the only God who could possibly save him. His honesty led him to say, I feel alone. His desperation leads him to say, If I'm alone, I'm lost. Friends, if your honesty doesn't lead you to full on desperation like this, if it stops at anger or judgment and the jump to trust that comes at the end of this psalm and other psalms like it, it's always going to feel forced. It's always going to feel convenient or even hypocritical. Honesty that stops short of desperation like this, like David's, assumes that there are other places you could turn. That because God has mistreated you, you'll trade him in for something different. It assumes that those options, better options exist. David doesn't believe that's true. If you shake your fist at God, because you feel abandoned and scream to him I'm done with you you assume you've got somewhere else to look and David won't he believes he's convinced he's operating on the sense that the only hope he has is the God who seems to have abandoned him so friends now we're ready for the jump to trust David starts with honesty lament always does Here's what I feel. I feel like I'm alone. But his honesty has carried him through desperation. He recognizes if I am alone, I'm lost. There is no other hope. I have nowhere else to turn. And because he's desperate, he hopes. He trusts in God's steadfast love. I want to just chew on this difference for a little bit here. For the rest of the time, I'm just going to chew on how our honesty, which leads us to desperation, serves our trust in God rather than undermining it. I just want to chew on this for a bit. I want, to, I want to keep on this this difference of motive between being honest with God because you're calling Him out, because you think you've exposed Him as a fraud, because He has mistreated you, and you think He ought to give an account for Himself, and and honesty towards God that says, "This is just what I feel. I, I don't know where else to turn. I don't know what else to do. I have nothing." Should you think about this as the difference between I mean, use this analogy? Maybe this is going to work. We'll see. I've been working on this one. The difference between being at the beach, on the beach, in one of those sections of the beach with chairs and umbrellas and full service waiters, and being caught in a rip tide fifty yards from shore with waves that are washing over you and nowhere else to turn. I mean, let me unpack this a little bit more. So, We were on vacation two or three weeks ago. Um, and we had set up our little tent and our little chairs next to one of these sections of the beach where they have those, those, those full service chairs. And you know, we're watching the waiters come and go, bringing snow cones to people on request. Now, if, if you feel like your beach waiter has been taking too long to bring you your snow cone, if that's your problem, then sometimes what you might experience is, is anger. Has he forgotten me? Is he willfully choosing to serve others beside me? And you might, you might within, with reason, within, within the bounds of good reason, shake your fist at him and say, I'm, I'm going to go find myself another stretch of full service beach. Another beach waiter who's more responsive to my need for a snow cone on a hot sunny day. You might, if, if that's what you're being honest about, if that's how, the context in which you feel forgotten, move on to some other option because, you know what, I mean, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of deliverers who can deliver a good snow cone on time. But if you're the guy who, who was swimming close to shore despite the red flag warning... And had your legs swept out from under you and felt yourself being carried by current you couldn't resist all the way out beyond where you could swim back. And you know there's only one lifeguard on that beach who could possibly see you and come to your aid. If that's your situation. And that lifeguard hasn't come yet. Well, you're you're not really shopping around for other lifeguards at that point, are you? You don't shake your fist at that lifeguard and say, why have you forgotten me? I'm done with you. Now, when you know that, that there's only one lifeguard who could possibly rescue you from your despair, you are laser focused on that lifeguard. You don't let him out of your sight and you scream to him with all the strength that you've got. I'm here. Don't forget me. Don't forget me. Don't turn your face from me. You you scream to him because you know that him hearing you is a difference between life and death. If he doesn't hear you, you sleep the sleep of death. David is there. His honesty about his situation has carried him to a true, clear-eyed despair. And that's how his despair over his true situation carries him into trust. He trusts because he doesn't have any other choices. Look at verse 5 and 6. I've trusted in your steadfast love. He's still teetering on the edge. Still might end up sleeping the sleep of death as far as he knows. But, despite where I am, despite what my experience is, without any change in his circumstances, but I've trusted in his steadfast love. David's comments are weighted With allusions to promises that God has made to Israel. Promises that he made, for example, when Israel entered the promised land after Egypt. God had heard them there when they had nowhere else to turn. He'd saved them. He'd carried them into a land that was going to be theirs. And he told them, he told their leaders, he told Joshua, for example. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you. David knew that. He'd heard those promises He had reason to believe that that lifeguard that he depended on for life wouldn't look away. So despite what he sees, he just trusts in that steadfast love. Steadfast love is like a shorthand reference for the covenant of promises that God made to his people. If God isn't true to those promises, like he has been in the past, then I have no hope. So he's reminding himself, I trusted in those promises. I'm going to keep on trusting in those promises. He looks ahead to the future. He knows that God has promised that one day beyond all sorrow beyond all death beyond what sin and sorrow can reach God's people will be secure in God's presence forever that's what he'd been promised and so now verse 5 my heart shall rejoice in your salvation not rejoicing yet but I am going to be in solidarity with the future in this moment while he wonders where God is he is in solidarity with a future that God has promised to him that he hasn't seen yet and so Remembering that he had once trusted this covenant love, claiming that one day he will sing in solidarity with that, when that future that he's, that, that, he's, that he's holding on to now, clinging, clinging on to hope for now, becomes reality. He knows that he'll rejoice in that day. So for now, in this day, verse 6, I'll sing to the Lord while I wait. I'll sing. Now, now here's something you might, you need to know about Christianity, especially if you're visiting this morning, interested in what Christians believe, maybe considering what it might look like for you to follow Jesus. I want to tell you something about the gospel that Christians cling to. This, this word gospel is one you've probably already heard this morning, and you'll hear it a lot more if you stick around with us. Uh, it it's just means good news. It's the news about Jesus and what he's done that we cling to for our only hope in life and in death. David, when he could refer to God's steadfast love that he trusted, he had good reasons to trust in it again because God had shown himself to be good and for his people in history. He'd saved them when they were in slavery in Egypt. Christians have even more that they can look back to. Because God's promise to be with his people, well, it, it came fulfilled in Jesus. We believe that Jesus, the historical person, was actually God himself taking on a human form so that he could live with us on this earth, experience life that we've experienced, grieve and suffer in every way that any one of us ever will. And not just grieve for empathy's sake, but actually die a death that he didn't deserve to die so that we could be set free from the deaths that we deserve to die for our sin. We believe that Jesus came primarily for this, To free us from the penalty that sin requires, and then to rise again from the dead. We believe that Jesus had a body as real as ours, that it died as death, a death that's as real as the death that anyone else has ever died, but that now, in that same body, in a resurrected body, he lives again. And we're waiting for the day that he'll give us bodies like that. And he promises that he'll forgive you for your sins and give you a body that will live forever if you trust in him. That's a promise you can claim today. He will give you what he says he will. But something you need to know about this gospel, something that makes lament, the lament passages that we're studying together, some are so important, is that the gospel doesn't promise that when Jesus offers you this, he also offers you a life of, free of pain and sorrow and suffering in the meantime. He doesn't actually promise that. So, so while we claim this offer that God can save us from sin and death, we also live in a life that's still gripped by sin and death. So we experience the fallout from the brokenness of the world every day. And sometimes even God's own children, even believers, Christians who are claiming the promises of Jesus, live through seasons where they can't see Him anymore where they feel forgotten by Him or even abandoned. Some Christians, even even here this morning, are desperate and ready to give up in their struggle against sin. They don't understand why God let them live with such pain and failure over and over again. Why He wouldn't just set them free from sin all at once. I don't know why He doesn't do that. There are other Christians sitting here in this room this morning who are grieving the stranglehold of death on life They've lost their loved ones. They've lost their babies. They've watched helplessly as their bodies get older and start to break down. And that's just some big picture issues. That's not to mention all the other smaller disappointments. All the the losses, all the frustrations that are represented all over this room. What you need to know about Christianity is that Christians, for now, are people who wait. They wait and they watch and they hope. For the victory that God has promised us by the gospel to be fully realized in our experience. And we need laments like this one, most, we need the most in seasons where it seems like this victory that God's promised us is impossible. When it seems like everything that stands in the way of this victory is impossibly strong, overwhelmingly strong. And if that's where you are this morning, if you are barely treading water in a choppy sea too far from shore to make it on your own, if you feel like that this morning, and if you're worried that that lifeguard over there has fallen asleep and dis- or just decided you're not worth the effort, then, then what you need to know is that this jump David makes from his honesty and his desperation into trust this choice he makes to trust anyway is not a reversion to wishful thinking. It's not sort of, some sort of suppression of the truth. It's not a change of subject. It's not a resolution of his situation. It's not a happy ending yet. He doesn't pretend he's not teetering on the edge anymore when he gets to verse 5. No, he's jumping to trust because his life is still teetering on the edge because he's hanging in the balance and he can't see his way to the end because he is still vulnerable and beyond his ability to protect this this trust in verses 5 and 6 and in every psalm like this one this jump to trust is not some sort of papering over of desperation it's because of his desperation He's driven to trust. His trust doesn't suppress his despair. It's fueled by his despair. Recently I read a book by a Christian philosopher at Yale named Nicholas Walter Storff. It's called The Lament for a Son. It was written, uh, I want to say 20 or 30 years ago, to capture some of the pain that he was experiencing and his confusion. Honestly, his confusion after... His twenty-something son died in a mountain climbing accident in Europe. It's not going to be the last time I mention this book as we keep moving through this series. Uh, near, near the beginning of the of the book, when he's setting out what he's going to try to do in the book, he makes this powerful statement that I think fits perfectly with what David is doing here in Psalm 13. Here's what Nicholas Woltersdorf wrote about what he's about to do in this book. Now, on the backside of the loss of his son, he says, I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. What he's saying, I think what David is saying, is that the tears serve as a kind of lens. The tears bring things into focus that otherwise you couldn't see. They clarify, they don't confuse what's true about the world around them. That's how David's despair is working in this psalm. It's verses 3 and 4, this desperation. Consider and answer me because if you don't, I'm dead. If you don't, my enemies win. I have nowhere else to turn. It's you answer me or I'm gone. If I'm alone, I'm lost. That desperation has clarified David's situation for him. Oh, this is why I have to trust in your steadfast love. Where else am I going to go? This is why I have to hold on for the day when my heart rejoices in your salvation. Because what else do I look to? This is why I'll sing to the Lord now. Who else am I going to talk to about my desperation, about where my life has brought me? See, genuine faith in God's promises comes through despair of any other source of help. It always does. The kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit to those who mourn, to those who have been so broken down by life that they are done trusting anything else that a more happy, chipper person might be able to rely on. The kingdom belongs to the desperate. So if, if you're grieving this morning, if you could say honestly what David did, What you should know based on this psalm is that what, what you're seeing in your desperation is not God's promise of love and help and victory unmasked and exposed as a fraud. What you're experiencing in your desperation is the relevance of His promise to be with you and to love you and to help you. You're experiencing how and why everything, everything depends on him being true. That, friends, is how lament serves trust. See, one way to build trust that the Psalms celebrate is seeing a really clear track record of God's goodness in your life. Feeling him close at hand when you need him. Plenty of thanksgiving Psalms talk about that. I called out to the Lord and He heard me. He heard my cry. Sometimes you will experience that. You'll know Him to be close at hand. You will feel the sweetness of His presence. And that's a great way to build trust in Him. A track record and a history. But the Psalms Psalms like this one show us another way to build trust too. Not just from experiencing His nearness. From having His Word confirmed in your life as something you can trust. But... But from desperation from a clear sense of where you stand if he isn't with you if he isn't for you that's a different kind of experience it's definitely not so pleasant it's not the kind of experience any one of us would ever ask for but it is powerful it is productive it is clarifying and these psalms give you no expectation as to how long you're allowed to lament before you feel anything other than despair There is no expiration date on prayers like those of verses 1 and 2. And and this psalm, others like it, the ones we've considered the last few weeks, they're God's gift to you in your season no matter how long it lasts. Keep praying it. But know this, based on David's experience and that of the Christians down through time and and even sitting around you right now in this room, your your confusion and your struggle and your pain and your desperation, friends, these things, they are not a dead end. This is not your life off the rails. What you're experiencing is a pathway to deeper trust. A clearer vision of the beauty and the power of what God's steadfast love has promised to you. This, what you're in right now, this is how God gives you the kingdom. I've been talking about despair as a kind of lens, those tear-filled eyes that you look through to see things that you couldn't see when your eyes were dry. I want to switch that metaphor just a moment as I close. Same point, different metaphor. Think about the desperation of these laments as a huge crashing wave that picks you up at, at its mercy and tosses you. But think of it as, think of, think of your desperation as a wave that tosses you up against the rock of God's promises. Desperation, clear honesty that leads you to knowing you have nowhere else to turn, tosses you. Yes, but tosses you onto the rock that will hold you. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers from history, uh, a British pastor from the from the 19th century, lived a very difficult life. He had much ministry success, but he also dealt a lot with depression. He came back to it over and over and over again. He couldn't understand why, but he did. He just never out, outlived it. He also had a lot of physical ailments, a lot of, uh, a lot of sicknesses, chronic sicknesses that he dealt with that made his life painful for a lot of it. At some point, in some context, Virgin was supposed to have said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I think that, that's the perspective this psalm offers you this morning. From honesty through desperation to trust. Father, I I pray that you would help us to trust, to choose what David chose despite what we see. And I pray that especially for friends who are deep in their despair this morning that they would not see these psalms as papering over anything, but as guiding them down a path that ends in hope. And I pray that they would choose that path this morning. I pray that you would consider them and answer them. Lest they sleep the sleep of death. Lest their enemies taunt over them that their God couldn't hear or do anything about their situation. I pray that we in in this room right now would know deliverance. And that in the meantime, you would keep us trusting in Jesus. I pray in his name, amen.